Flowers and kisses on the streets of Iran. Cars honking and scenes of jubilation flooded Tehran 45 years ago when year-long protests escalated into a full-blown revolution. This momentous event has repercussions felt today following the birth of the Islamic Republic of Iran in 1979. The wildly unpopular Shah left the country on a one-way flight to an unknown destination. This at a time when nobody thought they could get rid of the emboldened ruler. Mohammad Reza Pahlavi was propped up by U.S. President Richard Nixon and his Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who allowed him to build up his military arsenal and for Iran to capitalize on its growing oil reserves. This was a turning point in the history of the Middle East, a seismic shift that influenced the region's destiny and the start of the chapter of unstable relations with the West, to say the least. And the world has never recovered since. For the decades that followed, Iran's presence and part in the region could not be ignored, whether it was directly involved in conflicts like the eight-year-long war with Iraq or by supporting and forging alliances with militant groups in Lebanon, Iraq, and other countries. Today, the U.S. is in direct confrontation with the Iran-backed Houthis in the Red Sea after the group launched attacks on what it claims were Israel-linked targets. But are the Houthis an Iranian proxy? And what does it mean when we refer to Iran's expansionist regime? And what are Iran's ultimate goals from its own role in the Middle East? This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm your host, Nada Al-Tahir. In this episode, we reflect on the 1979 Iranian revolution on its 45th anniversary and the complex legacy it left. We also spoke with two prominent Iranian analysts who gave us some very opposing views on the different aspects of Iran's role in the region and what the future may or may not look like. It's a really complicated but fascinating topic. Let's dive in. Post-revolution Iran wanted to break from the U.S. influence that was dominant under the Shah. The country had nuclear ambitions and looked for militant alliances in the Middle East to secure its new position. All of this has put Iran even further at odds with the West, and particularly the U.S., the U.K., and Israel, Iran's sworn enemy. This anti-Western sentiment led over the years to the creation of new ideologies and lots and lots of proxy wars. To understand how all of this unfolded, I've spoken to Behnam Ben Talablu, senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I asked him about Iran's modus operandi, how it has managed to seemingly be in several places at once all these years, via what it calls the axis of resistance. The axis of resistance is a constellation of forces, some that the regime has created, uh, like Hezbollah in Lebanon or Badr in Iraq, or some that they have co-opted uh, that were existing in certain jurisdictions before. So Hamas in Gaza, you know, existed before. The Houthis in Yemen uh, existed before. Uh, and these groups were brought closer into the fold through sustained political and material and financial support. Either way, this is a loose kind of diffuse coalition of actors that the regime uh, is able to keep together based on a least common denominator approach. And though that least common denominator is if you are willing to shoot at someone that the Islamic Republic would like to shoot at. So who does Iran want to shoot at and to what end? Bahnam explains using recent events, particularly with regards to Israel's war in Gaza, which began after Hamas launched an attack against Israel on October 7. 
One would say that, you know, the Islamic Republic, which has closely watched every iteration of violence, every version of Gaza war, 2008, 2012, uh, 2014, then the 2021 war, the brief flare up with Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the summer of 2022. They've seen every different version of this. So while the regime may have been caught off guard by the uh, ferocity and the barbarism of Hamas or the ability of Hamas to go so far in and be uncontested for such a period of time on the actual date of the terrorist attack, October 7. The philosophy and the enmity is something that the regime had underwritten for so long. And in this sense, once you zoom out, you can see Iran being a major supporter of the run-up because of the support for this proxy group. And in the aftermath, when you have the intensification of these other theaters, once Israel begins the fight against Hamas in Gaza proper, and you have the Islamic Republic trying to shun any kind of overt involvement in October 7 to avoid a direct confrontation, which again, that avoiding of a direct confrontation is part and parcel of the Islamic Republic's foreign and security policy, particularly in the aftermath of the Iran-Iraq war, which brought a conventional military conflict onto Iranian territory and for the regime's revolutionary elite was really a, a never again kind of moment for them. So much of their forward defense, their foreign and security policy, the creating or the co-opting of these proxies is to have the fight consistently be taken geographically out of Iranian territory. We also spoke to director of the Iran Project and senior advisor at the crisis group Ali Baez, who had different words to say about Iran's motivations. I think you can look at uh, what Iran has been doing in the region uh, in the past few months and come to the conclusion that Iran is 10 feet tall and this powerful mastermind uh, that has a strategic plan in place and it's being implemented through uh, different partners and proxies throughout the region, projecting power all the way from the Indian Ocean to the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. Um, I don't see it that way because I see Iran uh, as mostly being in reactive crisis management mode since October 7th. Uh, a lot of the things that it has done seem to be basically kind of uh, impetuous and reactive. Uh, not strategic uh, at all. Uh, and the reason is that uh, Iran didn't want to be in the position that it is today. Uh, one has to understand that uh, this network of partners and proxies was developed primarily as a result of the sense of solitude that Iran experienced during the Iran-Iraq war, uh, where almost the entire region and the world powers were siding with uh, the Saddam regime, uh, who had uh, launched a war of aggression against Iran. And so this network is entirely designed to uh, deter an attack on Iranian soil. It is not designed to protect Hamas or any other member necessarily. Uh, the second fact that one has to take into consideration is that uh, Iran uh, is not an expansionist power, is not uh, is happy with its size. It, it's not seeking to dominate the region and be the hegemon because it also knows that uh, as a uh, Persian nation among Arabs and Turks, uh, as a Shia nation among Sunnis, uh, it, there is a clear ceiling to Iranian influence uh, in the region. But it is an opportunistic power. If you look at how all of these different groups that are now affiliated with Iran came to being, uh, it is very obvious that there is a direct correlation between the degree of chaos in the region and Iran's ability to exploit that chaos. So Iran needed alliances to protect its position. How? By supporting, arming, and emboldening other groups in the region, extending its reach and its power. 
So how do these non-state players help Iran exactly? I asked Ali. If you look at this network of partners and proxies that Iran has in the region, they really fall uh, along a spectrum. And at the one end of the spectrum, you have Hezbollah, which is really like uh, a NATO ally uh, in terms of its relationship with Iran. There is a lot of trust and even delegation of responsibilities from Iran to Hezbollah. Um, There is a high degree of coordination and uh, the relationship could not be any closer in the sense that you don't sometimes know where one ends and the other one begins. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have the Houthis, uh, who have a long track record of even ignoring Iranian advice and are very independently minded. Uh, The Iranians have influence on the Houthis, no doubt, but uh, there is not necessarily the kind of command and control and close coordination that you have with some other members of the axis of resistance. So, two relatively opposing views from the get-go. Regardless of where you stand, it can be agreed that Iran right now is not the direct face of nearly 200 attacks on U.S. targets by groups it supports, one way or another. The U.S., on the other hand, is still pointing at Iran and engaged in a direct confrontation with the Iran-backed Houthis. How is that imagery playing out politically and militarily on the world scale? We hear from Benham. No U.S. president has been willing to run this, you know, what I would say is would be uh, insane social science experiment in real time of targeting Iranian territory when previous U.S. presidents, when the capabilities and the threat of the regime was weaker, also shunned this idea. You know, you may hear, and I'm no on this issue, uh, I'm, I'm no shrinking violent. You know, I, I believe that, you know, you should be aggressively rolling up the regime's networks, aggressively enforcing oral sanctions, you know, getting, you know, our, our friends across the region, as well as our friends in Europe to be rolling back rather than opening up diplomatic embassies uh, with a regime that causes this much instability and chaos for friends and neighbors across the region. So in essence, that is a gigantic prelude to say, I don't believe it is prudent at this moment for an administration like you see currently in Washington, which has been adverse to even imposing or enforcing tough non-military measures on the government of the Islamic Republic of Iran, to all of a sudden push them into a military conflict that they don't want, probably are not prepared for. And if you look at the American electorate, particularly in an election year, likely cannot sustain. I mean, the quiet part out loud here, and this is tough, particularly for Uh, you know, friends and allies and partners uh, of the U.S. uh, in the region is that the American population has voted for three very different men with three very different worldviews, but in essence with one message about the Middle East and particularly the CENTCOM area of operations, which is to say that they believe the Middle East is a junk bond. Um, I don't believe this. Many of my friends don't believe this. Uh, Many in Washington both don't believe this. But because of the poor U.S. track record, Uh, in the region and the expenses imposed on the American electorate in blood and treasure and even psychological uh, of being engaged in the longest war and not having that longest war come to a glorious conclusion, but to come to a conclusion uh, that we saw all of us publicly in late summer, early fall of 2021 with the U.S. exit from Afghanistan. And it's that precisely that kind of exit that got the head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps next door in in Iran to say the America of today is not the same America of 10, 20 years ago. Uh, And that's a dangerous thing for regime officials in Iran to say, because not just their capabilities are going up, their will to use these capabilities are going up. So I see some U.S. risk aversion towards Iran proper 
as driven from a the politics of the situation, fear of a widening war, even though what the Islamic Republic is doing, and we talked about in the previous answer, is actually widening the war. So there is already a widening war underway. It's not the U.S.'s fault, but it's Iran's ability to activate different geographies at a time of its own choosing. But there's a reason why the U.S. wouldn't want to be in direct military conflict with Iran. Ali explains. Most uh, U.S., uh, almost every U.S. administration since 1979 revolution has uh, avoided going down that road, uh, even the most hawkish or militant uh, one, which was the Trump administration. And even they didn't go as far as uh, targeting Iran on its own soil. Again, because it has consequences. Then there is now another element that one has to take into account seriously, which is that as a result of Trump's uh, withdrawal from the 2015 nuclear deal, Iran's nuclear program is now closer than ever to the verge of nuclear weapons. It would take Iran only five days to enrich enough uranium for a single nuclear weapon. It can have enough for an arsenal of four to five nuclear weapons in a month. Now, if Iran is attacked, uh, I can very well see arguments inside the country saying, well, we have paid the economic price of a nuclear weapon through years of sanctions, and now we have been attacked on our own soil. We need nuclear weapons in order to prevent this from happening again, because nuclear weapons are the ultimate deterrent, right? So. Imagine the consequences of that. So, lots of complexities, alliances, and indirect confrontations. This turbulent relationship has cost the region a lot. So what's the solution here? How can this historical tension end? We hear from Ali. This is a deeper issue than uh, just one uh, um, particular episode in recent history, uh, in the sense that uh, Iran is, a, is, a, is an ancient civilization um, and just like the way that the Chinese have the Middle Kingdom thinking of believing that they are destined to play an important role in the fate of Asia, Iran also believes that it has a place uh, and a historic role to play uh, in, in West Asia. And so uh, there is, in that sense, a lot of continuity between uh, the monarchy in Iran and the Islamic Republic. Both of them uh, want to be a uh, recognized regional uh, powerhouse. But at the end of the day, you know, as as much as Iranian dominance in the region is unacceptable to the U.S. and to its neighbors, uh, Iranian exclusion from the region is also unrealistic. Behnam here explains as well how Iran's power in itself can be accepted, but it all depends on how that position is used. I think you know one very short to medium term reason why we have this problem is everyone in the region and everyone vis-a-vis here, like in the West and America, I don't think in their heart of hearts has has a problem with Iranian power. I think they have a problem to the ends to which Iranian power is wielded. So in this sense, I think step number one in any good counter Iran policy is triage is the Hippocratic Oath, is do no harm. Do no harm to your current position. And then from that, you can build up. It's anyone's guess where we're all heading in this disruptive, expanding, bloody, yet historically pivotal conflict that's still unfolding. It's important to remember how we got here, even if the views on this matter differ depending on who you speak to. This episode of Beyond the Headlines was produced by Dua Farid and Arthur Edison, and I've been your host, Nada Al-Tahir. For more on this and other deep dives, Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head to thenationalnews.com.